The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn together to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, where we're at the beginning of this study of this great New Testament epistle. We'll be looking this evening and the next few weeks as, at verses 3 through 14. I'm going to look especially at verse 3, but surveying a little bit verses 3 through 14. This section reminds me of a dwarf star. You, you scientific students and folks who know this kind of thing... Um, a dwarf star, as far as I know, is a star that's because of the gravity of the star and at a certain point in the star's life compacts upon itself and the material becomes very, very dense so that apparently in a square foot you have thousands of pounds of material because of the molecules being so close. That's kind of my feeling about verses 3 through 14 of our text. It's one long sentence in the Greek. Of course, all of our translations break it up into more sentences than one. And as I read it to you, probably you will not be able to concentrate well enough to think about every word here. To actually read this and to comprehend it, you have to go very slowly, and you might even have to outline it as you go. And that's not surprising because it's so packed full of truths So let us give attention to God's word, Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we ask for your help in plumbing the depths, in mining the riches from this text. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. On my 21st birthday, I took the first plane flight of my life from Harrisburg Airport up to New England to visit a high school friend of mine at Bowdoin College. It was an unforgettable experience for me, and I still recall it to some extent, being high above the land. Of course, I had seen pictures of uh, taken from airplanes, but it was so much more breathtaking and dramatic to actually be up there in the sky looking down. I still remember that bird's eye view drawing me at the time to thoughts about God and God's transcendent being and power. Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is something like a plane flight, looking down over the landscape of what God has done for us in Christ, a bird's eye view of all the riches we have in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul was so caught up in the blessings found in Christ that he couldn't stop to take a breath. Probably if he had my English class in 11th grade that my uh, teacher taught us about run-on sentences, he probably would have got a little you know, negative check mark there that the sentence was just much too long. But he just, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking about the riches of the blessings that we have in Christ. And this section is kind of like the overture of a great musical or a great opera in where you hear the themes that are going to unfold later in the musical, and you hear them here, and they'll be even fuller yet to come. There's a sense in which not only is chapter 1 like that, but all of Ephesians is like that. What an epistle. What a letter filled with the knowledge of Christ and the glory of God. A marvelously concise yet comprehensive survey of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all its implications for us. No wonder John Calvin considered it his favorite epistle. John Stott summarizes the content of Ephesians in this way. What God did through the historical work of Jesus Christ and does through His Spirit today in order to build His new society. I think that's a good, concise summary. What God did through the historical work of Christ and does through His Spirit today in order to build His new society, the church for which Jesus Christ died. We could just briefly look at the outline of the rest of Ephesians as well, just to give you an idea of where we'll be going in months to come, chapters 1 and the first half of chapter 2, we could say, speak of the new life which God has given us in Christ. And then in the middle of chapter 2 through chapter 3, the new society which God has created in Christ. And there we'll find about the breaking down of the barrier between Gentile and Jew. And then in chapter 4 and chapter, most of chapter 5, we could say the new standards which God expects of his new society, especially their unity and their purity. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, through the end of the book, the new relationships into which God has brought us. He talks about relationships in the home and in employment and the relationship that is hostility to the devil and his work. So, 
That's just a brief overview of where we'll be going. What a magnificent contribution the book of Ephesians is to Christian doctrine and Christian duty, to Christian faith and to Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must do as a consequence of that. Well, this evening, I would like to look primarily at verse 3, which is a summary statement of these blessings we have in Christ. And it, it stands as kind of an opening outburst of adoration as Paul launches into this great epistle. An outpouring of praise, a doxology, a blessing of God for his blessings to us. And I would like to look at this at under two main points, and then our third point will be applications that we draw from this. Well, our first point then is this. As Christians, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christians have been given, past tense, every spiritual blessing in Christ. This verse is a declaration of our union with Christ, a very fundamental book of Ephesians. We find this idea throughout the book of Ephesians, but especially in verses 3 through 14. I will just list the verses for you in these verses where we find the phrase, in Christ or in Him. And you just hear how often that, that it's there. It, it's actually 11 times we find that. In verses 3, 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. You hardly get by a verse without a reference to in Christ or in Him. Fifteen times in these verses we see references to Christ Himself. And so we have this overwhelming summary of these blessings in Christ spanning history from election in eternity past by the will of the Father all the way to the uniting of all things in Christ at the consummation of of history. We could summarize the outline of these verses, verses 3 through 14, in a number of ways. Let me just look at two, and that'll help us to just walk through some of the highlights of what these blessings are, and then we're going to expand these more in weeks to come. In verse 4, we see election, the spiritual blessing of election a past blessing, we might say. It looks back to the Father choosing us, even as He chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The doctrine of election, God choosing us, which should not make us any way boastful or proud, but should humble us because it doesn't depend on us in any way. And then in verses 5 through 8, We could summarize that by the the present blessing of adoption or redemption, that we have been adopted through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then in verses 9 and 10, I referred to the, the uniting of all things in Christ, that future blessing that is yet to come, that 
Paul describes in this way in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That all saints, all believers of every age and every time, all angels who did not fall into sin, all the renewed creation will be united one day in Christ. And then we could say that verses 13 and 14, uh, verses 11 through 14, in in fact, describe these blessings and their scope that Paul talks about Gentile and Jew entering into these blessings in Christ. And so we know that these blessings and this unity transcends all divisions and all distinctions. That's one way to outline these Verses. Another way might be to just take a Trinitarian view and, and talk about verses 4 to 6, the Father electing, verses 7 to 12, the Son redeeming, and verses 13 and 14, the Spirit sealing us by His work in us. And each one of those, 4 to 6, ends with that, that refrain like a great bell tolling to the praise of His glory. We find that at verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14. So that's another way you could look at this breakdown of these verses. And in fact, that Trinitarian emphasis might even be seen if we look at verse 3, which is the focus of our study. Blessed be the God and Father, the Father is mentioned, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And that reference to spiritual blessing certainly brings to mind the work of the Holy Spirit in applying these things to us in our experience and in our life. Well, that's just really an overview, just briefly summarizing these blessings that Paul summarizes for us. And it's important that we just reflect on these and to recognize and to think about this union with Christ, which is a hallmark of New Testament theology and of Christian life and experience. It's very, very important that every Christian take stock of the fact and realize that a major aspect of thinking about our Christian life and our daily walk with Christ, it comes out of our union with Christ. We are in Christ. He dwells with us. We live in Him. We have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, by virtue of our union with Him. Just stopping to reflect on that, there is no spiritual life apart from Christ. There is no spiritual blessing apart from Christ. It's not as if Paul could say, blessed be the Father who has given us every spiritual blessing. Whether or not you know Christ or not, you have this. No, the Bible never says anything like that. Pollsters these days tell us that many people, especially young people, when they're surveyed about their their spiritual or religious inclinations, respond in these ways. Yes, they are very interested in spiritual things, but no, they are not interested in religion or especially organized religion. And there might be right reasons for why they are skeptical about organized religion. Certainly, organized religion has failed in many ways. Um, 
But mostly, that response to that kind of pull is a very negative thing. It reflects a trend in our culture and society where people feel like, I can have my own spiritual quest, and I, can, I don't need to go to the Bible or go to Jesus Christ or Christianity, and I don't need any religion, really. I just go and make up my own religion as I go, my own spirituality. I will be a spiritual person apart from anything that the Bible says. Well, we know that all religions are not equal, and we certainly don't think that that's a good thing, that they would seek any kind of religion. But the real dangerous part of that response is that they are throwing the baby out with the bath water if they are not seeking Christ through what the Bible tells us about him. There is no spiritual life apart from Christ. Here's maybe a very weak illustration of that truth. On July 4th, we went to see my mom, and we, had, we kids had purchased her a computer for her Christmas a while ago. I know it's been seven months, and I took it to her house and tried to set it up. You know, I had it kind of ready to go and had the printer up and running and the software going and took it to her house and thought, now, how do I get online with her? I knew she had dial-up. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe I had downloaded some modern version of America Online that she has. And I put it on there. I thought, you know, it was going nowhere. She had dial-up, but I don't think the computer has a built-in modem in it. So I was kind of stuck. And, you know, it could have gone with uh, Wi-Fi, but she doesn't have Wi-Fi. So here's this powerful computer, the keyboard, the mouse, the printer, all set to go. You know, thumbs down. No internet. No email, Mom. Sorry, I've got to get my son-in-law to go there and fix it up because, you know, I didn't know what to do. Trying to cultivate your spiritual life without Jesus Christ is like trying to get online without a modem or without Wi-Fi. There's, there's no life there. It's dead. The computer won't do anything. Our union with Christ is fundamental to our Christian life. Well, the second point we notice from our text is that these blessings in Christ are spiritual in nature. Notice again, back in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Spiritual in the sense of derived from the Holy Spirit whose blessing and whose influence are purchased for us by Christ. They're spiritual in that sense, not in some kind of generic sense, but they're related to and brought by the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. Any other kind of spiritual influence is evil. We want only the spiritual influence of the Holy Spirit of the Comforter whom Jesus Christ sent. It reminds me of the parallel texts in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel where there's that parable about prayer, and Jesus ends up saying, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's Luke's version of that. Matthew's version of that is, how much more will the Father give good gifts, good things to those who ask Him? In other words, the Holy Spirit 
is the summary. He, he is everything. He is all the good gifts, all the good things of God that God gives us rolled up into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual blessings derive from the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then there's that key phrase that we find at the end of verse 3, in the heavenly places. That's a phrase that's found in the book of Ephesians five times. I want to walk through those. But you should know that that phrase is not found in any of Paul's other epistles at any place. It's only here in Ephesians that we find that. And I wonder if some scholars speculate that Ephesus was a center of spiritual darkness with the temple to Diana or Artemis. There was a real sense in Ephesus that there were spiritual realities. There was false worship. There was pagan worship that that city was gripped with. And so Paul's going to end up speaking about spiritual warfare and the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. But he's saying, he's starting the book off by saying, we have every spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places. Let's just walk through those verses. We find the the first one here in verse 3, but further down in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ, the Father worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God, and now he is seated, which is a declaration of Christ's power and authority to be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And we know from the book of Acts that from that heavenly reign of Christ, He pours out His Spirit upon His fledgling church. And Jesus continues to do that, the spiritual blessings that flow from the heavenly places in Christ. Then not long after that in chapter 2, verse 6, talking about how we've been saved, it says, and raised us up with Him, with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Notice again this past tense. It's something that's true for every experience, for every Christian. It's already happened to us. We have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ. What a marvelous gift from God that we have. What a great salvation we have. Then over in chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places places. Now we're seeing even a wider description of the amazing work of God that here God is saying that he is displaying to the principalities and powers. And Paul might have evil principalities and powers in mind here. It's very likely that that's the case. He's openly displaying to the spiritual universe the glory of Jesus Christ in his church. Amazing that as Jesus Christ works His work in us, because of our union with Him, the very wisdom of God is being displayed. So the world may not see it. People may not see it. The front pages don't say much about Christians and what God is doing through the church, but the heavenly places are ringing with the wisdom of God to the glory of God. And then the final verse is way at the end of the book in chapter 6 at verse 12. 
that verse about the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we are engaged in spiritual warfare against these forces in the heavenly places. Doesn't this phrase tell us that the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, is very real. We do not want to lightly mess around with the spiritual realm. Spiritual warfare is very real. And you cannot be neutral in this matter of where you stand in the spiritual realm. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ You are either uh, allied with the forces of the principalities and powers of evil, or you belong to Christ. In fact, it's very interesting that in chapter 2, when Paul begins chapter 2 and talks about where we all are apart from Christ, he says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's another similar phrase. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Here's Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was a student of the Hebrew Bible, who knew the Bible very well, who was meticulous in keeping the ceremonial law, in In terms of his works righteousness, he thought himself righteous before God, but he says, looking back, just like the rest, I was being led astray by the prince of the power of the air without Jesus Christ, without faith in the Messiah. The spiritual world is very significant. These blessings, you see, are spiritual in nature. And so we can think about that. They must be spiritually discerned. That's not an easy thing. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about this whole realm of the Spirit, and he says that we impart truth from God in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And then then he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when we start thinking about these blessings, and in the next few weeks as we walk through them, we have to remember that understanding the things of the Spirit doesn't come naturally to us. They must be spiritually discerned. They must be discerned with help from the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ. And so no wonder it's hard for the Christian for you and for me to keep these blessings in our mind's eyes. Uh, How often do our minds go in a wrong direction spiritually when we're tempted in some way? And one of the main battlefields of our temptation is in our mind where this spiritual battlefield takes place and our thoughts are tempted to go in a wrong direction. And so we must call to mind these spiritual blessings, all the riches we have in Christ. I can imagine Paul. Now, we know that he wrote this letter most likely from 
prison in Rome, but I can imagine him throughout his apostolic journeys. And you think about what was on Paul's mind. I don't mean to make a super spiritual saint of Paul, but I really believe Paul walked with Christ. Yes, he still had remaining sin, and he was warring against sin. But I was just thinking about him. He was a tent maker, which means he was a leather worker of some kind, producing these kind of goods. And I'm just imagining him getting some kind of inferior leather from a vendor in the market one day. And I can imagine him, you know, trying to do some work and then finding out the leather is flawed. Stay with me on this, okay? I'm just, this is kind of daily Paul's life. And just what would be going in his mind as he went back to, you know, get the, taking his receipt with him, of course, and, you know, uh, getting the leather exchanged. You know, was he muttering under his breath, that stupid vendor, you know, give me the wrong leather. He better give me double back, you know, for this. I mean, he could have been falling in some way into that, but I don't have the sense that usually that would be Paul's reaction. For someone to be able, under the Spirit of God, to write Ephesians 1, to be thinking of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, I don't think he'd get all bent out of joint. Maybe he would go back and honestly try to get an honest uh, return of some kind. But Paul's heart was on the things of the Spirit, the blessings we have in Christ, on the kingdom of Christ. The sister epistle to Ephesians is Colossians, and I always think of Colossians 3, verse 1, where Paul says, If then you are raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that similar to reflecting on the spiritual blessings? I challenge you this week, as you go about your lives, to try to bring to mind the reality of your union with Christ and the blessings that we have in Christ. Well, that brings us to point three, and that is applying these things to our lives. What can we say? I have two main applications here. The first is this. The Christian's instinctive response to the astounding blessings in Christ is worship. Our instinctive response to the blessings in Christ is worship. Isn't that how verse three begins? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins with worship. And it does seem to have come very naturally from Paul. It's so interesting how this refrain punctuates verses 3 through 14. Paul cannot help himself, but as he recounts the blessings, election, adoption, sealing with the Spirit, the gathering of all things together in Christ. He just has, he almost can't contain himself. To the praise of his glory, he breaks out in this refrain of praise to God. Worship and praise to God in its best and highest form comes naturally, naturally to the spiritually minded. It's not something that is forced. Now, Let me qualify myself by saying, yes, as Christians, we must often call ourselves to praise and thank the Lord. 
we might not be responding naturally like we should. We might not be in a spiritual mindset. We need to call to mind the truths of the blessings we have in Christ and, in a sense, preach to ourselves like the psalmist speaks to himself and talks to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why so disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my God. There are those times that it's not spontaneous. But just think about this spontaneous praise and worship that ought to be occurring in our lives. Think of some of the lesser categories of worship from everyday life. Think of a, a beautiful sunset, and there's, there's worship in the sense of, oh, that's a beautiful sunset. Someone who doesn't even believe in God is very close to worship when they are ooing and aahing the creation. Maybe there's a beautiful rainbow, and a child just naturally says, ooh, look at that. So that's one example. Another example would be a young couple in love, And their love for one another in this very idealized stage is very worshipful. They just pine for one another. They can't wait to be together. They're thinking of each other all the time. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It needs to be matured into what true love really is. But it's coming close to that worship we might think of. Or think of a great earthly victory of some kind. Think of the liberation of Paris in World War II. And as the American GIs come in, there's this spontaneous celebration in the streets of Paris and women just throwing flowers at the GIs coming in. They're so happy that there's been this great victory and the Nazis have left. Or to be more mundane, think of your favorite baseball team, or maybe it's not your favorite baseball team right now, but the team that wins the World Series and there's almost a worship that goes on. And, and that I, I give examples like that to, to let us be thinking, how instinctive is our worship? How much does it rise to our hearts and minds throughout a given week? Are we able to say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are our minds on these things to some extent? The glory of God in what he has done in giving us these blessings through the work of Jesus Christ must be on our minds, and in our hearts to some extent. Yes, you have to give your mind to other things, your job, your school, other things, but to some degree it should be coming back to this again and again. An instinctive response must be cultivated. It doesn't mean it's necessarily spontaneous, but you and I need to be cultivating these. You just think about some of those examples I gave you and how Even those examples, you can see how they don't always occur. Somebody could be driving down the road and texting. You know, a young person could be texting and missing a beautiful sunset and not even aware of creation around him or her. Or uh, you might be too busy watching TV inside that if you were out looking at the lightning bugs coming out at night, you know, you're just missing that. Or take another example. Those of you who don't follow ice hockey who won the Stanley Cup? You know, you probably don't even know who was playing in the finals because you're not an ice hockey fan. Well, you'll have to figure that one out for yourself. But my point is that, you know, something great could be going on and you're oblivious to it. You're not interested in it. In order for true praise to rise from our hearts, we must be reflecting on the object of our praise. We must be reflecting on the Lord and His grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that's not easy. 
Yes, we might say it's instinctive, but it's not easy because of our remaining sin, because of our spiritual warfare. There are so many distractions. We live in a world of distractions, and we must be constantly fighting against the distractions that keep us from worshiping our God. Cultivate a discipline of worship and praise to God. But my second application is along these lines. Our union with Jesus Christ is the basis for our fight against temptation and sin. Our union, these spiritual blessings we have in Jesus Christ, that's the basis of the victory of overcoming more and more day by day as you and I wage the warfare against sin until we go to the grave or until Jesus Christ returns. And I wish there was some other way to say this could take place, but the Bible is very realistic. One of the great themes of Ephesians with our union with Christ could be summarized in this theological phrase, be who you are. Be who you are in Christ. In other words, we describe it in this, ter- in this way, the indicative you are united to Christ. That's the indicative. The indicative is the basis for the imperative. Live that way. Live as Christ calls you to live. Do you see what I mean? It's not the other way around. We don't live a certain way, and that merits that we are united to Christ. No, we are united to Christ by grace through faith. And if you haven't come to know Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you're trying to somehow live a spiritual life or a holy life or a moral life, and you haven't first given your life to Jesus Christ and trusted in Him, there there is going to be no power for living out the imperative, the commands of God, the will of God in your life. And Paul's going to get into very specific commands, especially in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. But before we jump into them, you have to understand this root theological issue. Be who you are. And we have to keep coming back to that. Our identity is a new creation in Christ, blessed, elect before the foundation of the world, adopted by God, redeemed, forgiven, sealed by the Spirit, looking forward to the day when all will be gathered together in Christ. Be who you are. It's the basis for our battle against temptation and sin. And as you work through this book and you you look at the, the practical sections of this book and marriage and child and parent relationships and working at your job, how to do that, and the spiritual warfare we're to be engaged in, our, our fight against sin, our relationships, seeking to act rightly to those around us, all these things are transformed because Christians are in Jesus Christ. That makes a difference this week for how you go about fighting remaining sin. You do not just put your nose to the grind and say, I'm trying my best, Lord. No, there's got to be active trusting in Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you are not actively seeking Him and trusting in Him and calling upon Him and by faith standing on this declaration of God that we're united to Christ with all these spiritual blessings, then there's just going to be no power in your fight against sin. 
the child story of the ugly duckling, I think, illustrates this. You probably all know the story. There's this orphaned swan that is being raised by a mother duck and her other ducklings. And this swan kind of takes abuse from his brothers and sisters because it's ugly. And so these ducklings grow up, and this is the ugly duckling. Of course, as the story unfolds, it's not too hard to guess what's going to happen. That one day, the ugly duckling looks in the water and sees his reflection, and now he's grown up, and he realizes as he sees other swans, I'm not a duckling at all. I'm a swan. Christians, we are ugly ducklings. We are swans. We have a new identity. Be who you are. You will be working out that new identity as long as you live on this earth. Be who you are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Continue to work out those blessings and that new identity, but do so in living faith in your resurrected and reigning Savior. Amen. Father, thank you for the riches that we have in Jesus Christ, for the new identity that every child of God has from the moment of regeneration, of new birth, that we are new in Christ. We stand in Christ alone, and we ask that you would help us to live that out this week to the glory of our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.